Lord God, help us turn our hearts and our attention to you. And hear what you will speak through the power of your Holy Spirit. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. We are continuing with our series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in a rather difficult section of his letter. In chapter 7, verses 7 through 12, I hope that we can gain some clarity on what Paul is saying here this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy. And the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. Here in chapter 7 of Romans, we finally get answers to some of the questions that have perhaps been mounting in our minds since early on in this letter. These questions concern the nature of the Mosaic law. If you have been following what Paul has been saying in Romans to this point, then you have very likely come away with a very negative view of the law. Paul really has had nothing good to say about the law. He's told us in chapter 3 that the law reveals sin and condemns the sinner. In chapter 4, he's told us that the law defines sin as transgression and brings about wrath. In chapter 5, he has told us that the law was added so that the trespass might increase. In chapter 6 and 7, Paul has stated that those who are in Christ Jesus have been freed from the law and are therefore not under the law, but under grace. And all along the way, he's been explaining that God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law. And along with this negative view of the law has come a strong criticism of legalism. If you recall, Paul has gone to great lengths to describe how we are not able by our own strength to make ourselves right with God through obedience to the law, since we are incapable of keeping the law perfectly. But even as Paul has been very critical of the law and legalism, he has also rebuked those who have a 
dismissive attitude toward the law. Those who Pastor John referred to last week as libertines. Libertinism is an attitude which holds that attempting to obey the law limits liberty, keeping one from living life to its fullest. Inherent in this view is that sin is of little significance now that we are under grace. Well, this leaves us in a very confusing place, though, right? Paul has clearly portrayed the law as being negative, leading to a statement about how we need to be released from the law in chapter 7, verse 6. And from this negative view of the law, he's been critical of those who seek to base righteousness and obedience to the law, but he's also rebuked those who have dismissed the law. Well, which is it, Paul? Are we to dismiss the law or keep it? What exactly is the place of the law for those who are in Christ Jesus? Along with these questions about the nature of the law, one might also wonder about the connection between the law and sin, since Paul has made comments that have drawn a connection between the law and sin. He states in chapter 6, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. And what is perhaps the next obvious question we should be asking? Is the law sin? These are the questions Paul knows will be asked of his theology. And so now he sets out to answer them. Paul, from the very outset of this passage here in chapter 7, very adamantly contends that the law is not sin. The answer is not merely no. The answer is a very emphatic no. Another way that it could be said is let it be unthinkable. Paul's response is that we should never even entertain the notion that the law is sinful or evil or bad or harmful. If you recall, this is the same way he responded in chapter 6 when he was asking if we should continue to sin so that grace may abound. And if we look closely at Paul's arguments in both chapter 6 and chapter 7, we find that the arguments are very similar. Both of them are a response to a libertine attitude. In chapter 6, Paul's correcting this wrong-headed view about grace, stating that it does not encourage people to sin, but renders sin inadmissible, even inconceivable. Here, he is correcting a wrong-headed view about the law, stating that the law does not create sin and death. On the contrary, it is our fallen human nature which is to blame for them. Paul's going to draw out why exactly the law must never be held responsible for our failure to keep it. But how he goes about explaining this is not quite as straightforward as this emphatic no he gives to start this passage. In fact, Paul's argument here can be downright confusing. We might be asking ourselves, when was this supposed time when he was alive apart from the law? When was it that he was alive and the law was dead? Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, we are all dead in our sin. And this is a condition we were born in. We don't know a time when we were alive and the law was dead. So, How are we to make sense out of what Paul is saying? So what is the rule for interpreting Scripture? We interpret Scripture with Scripture. 
And when we do this, the solution, I believe, is not complicated as it might seem. Before we move forward, though, let's recall very quickly what Paul is ultimately trying to accomplish in this section of Romans. It's important to keep this context in mind to help us frame what Paul is saying here. So remember that this section of Romans, which is comprised of Romans chapters 5 through chapter 8, is meant to provide an assurance of salvation for those who have been justified by faith alone in Christ alone. He says right from the beginning of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Paul wants us to have a confidence and a certainty that what God has begun in us will be brought to completion in our final salvation. He wants us to understand that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross is sufficient for the atonement of our sins and that having faith in Jesus Christ has justified us and set us into right relationship with God now and in the age to come. The one who has faith is safe and secure. His position before God is certain. And so in between chapter 5 and chapter 8, where Paul emphasizes this assurance of salvation, he deals with the two threats of our assurance, sin and the law. And this is what Paul is doing here. He is defining the position of the Christian with regard to his relationship to the law. I remind you of this context because it might be easy to speed right past this passage, especially with how convoluted it might seem at first reading. But what Paul is saying here is crucial for our assurance. Too often we as Christians have a very foggy understanding of the law, causing us to veer off into one of the two ditches that Paul has condemned in Romans. We end up with either an attitude of legalism or libertinism. Not only are both of these attitudes dangerous spiritually, but they are also disastrous for our assurance. So with that being said, let's examine what Paul has to say here in these verses. Paul begins by saying, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. Let's clarify what Paul doesn't mean here. He's already established in chapter 1 of Romans that we are all without excuse in regards to having a general understanding of God's character and nature, which would include moral law. For God has made it plain for all people through creation. And we know this truth, right? All people have some sort of moral compass. Everyone is born with an innate sense of wrong and right. And most people, whether they are Christian or not, will acknowledge that there is something terribly askew in our world. Just turn on the news for a few minutes. Or worse, get on social media. People are well aware that something is wrong. So we can rule out what Paul doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that he would not have had an awareness of this brokenness without the law. We don't have to look far to get to Paul's intended meaning, though. For Paul is simply repeating what he's already said in chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since the law, through the law, comes knowledge 
of sin. The law is not able to justify anyone, but it does provide a right conception of the true character and nature of sin. Paul is saying the same thing here in chapter 7, that the law has made clear to him the real nature of sin. And what is the real nature of sin? Paul begins to clarify this in his very next statement. For I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. This is very clever. Very clever. Do you see what's going on here? Do you understand why Paul has selected this particular command? Paul is making a distinction between outward actions and inward dispositions. You see, it might be clear to all people that it is wrong to steal something that belongs to our neighbor. But is it clear that it is also wrong to desire our neighbor's belongings? It might be clear to all people that it's wrong to commit adultery, but is it clear that it's also wrong to fantasize about committing adultery? It might be clear to all people that it is wrong to murder, but is it clear that to hate someone in our hearts is also sin? Were it not for a true understanding of the law, an understanding that the law is spiritual and is concerned with a person's heart and his attitude toward God as much or more as it is with his outward action toward his neighbors, were it not for a true understanding of the law, we would not know the depth of our sin. Were it not for a true understanding of the law, we would not have known that a desire is as damnable as a deed, and we would not have a right understanding of ourselves. Paul says here, I didn't know. I didn't know the true nature of sin and its terrible power until I came to truly understand the nature of the law. I want to stop right here because I think it's important for us to get the implications of what Paul has just said. It is one thing to have a moral compass and to know right from wrong in terms of external actions. In this sense, a Christian and a non-Christian will agree on a great deal. There will be undoubtedly general agreement on most of the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. A Christian and a non-Christian will agree that it is wrong to murder and to commit adultery and to steal and to lie, but it is quite another thing to understand the truth about the law and sin. How are we to know the depth of our sin and thus our desperate need for a Savior if we do not have a grasp on the true nature of the law? And what is the result of our blindness in regard to the law? One major difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian will hopefully recognize at the end of the day that he might not have failed these commandments externally, but he has certainly failed them internally. And he will flee to Jesus to find his salvation while the non-Christian will think that since he didn't murder the person who cut him off in traffic that day, 
it must mean that he's a pretty good person. Does a pretty good person need salvation? No. But a good person is going to heaven, right? And this is exactly what Paul is going to point out to us in verses 8 through 11. How exactly is it that Paul goes from considering himself blameless in righteousness under the law to being the chief of all sinners? Was he really blameless? Of course not. Rather, it is because Paul, before his conversion, fancied himself to be obedient to the law. And after his conversion, he understood the true nature of the law and sin and therefore understood the depth of his depravity. If we examine the Gospels, we find that they show that the Pharisees in general were very concerned with following the law externally while being completely oblivious to the spiritual nature of the law. This is why Jesus calls the scribes and the Pharisees hypocrites who are only concerned with cleaning up the outside. And he calls them whitewashed tombs which are beautiful on the outside but are full of death on the inside. This is also why Jesus tells a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector who are praying in the temple. The Pharisee in this parable is portrayed as very self-righteous. Instead of going to confess his sin, he thanks God that he isn't a sinner like the tax collector. Seeming to imply that in his mind he thought that he was perfectly obedient to the law. Meanwhile, the tax collector is begging for mercy, understanding his utter helplessness. In the same chapter of Luke, we are also given the account of Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler who wants to know how to inherit eternal life. What does Jesus say to him? You know the commandments. And what does the man reply? All of these I have kept from my youth. Really? There's a good reason in Luke 5 then that Jesus says to the Pharisees, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the right not I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Is Jesus really saying that the Pharisees are not sinners? No more than he literally means what he says in John 15 when he states, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. It wasn't that people weren't sinners before he came. Rather, his coming provided knowledge of their sinfulness. Likewise, it wasn't that the Pharisees were truly righteous and didn't need a savior. Rather, it was that they were blind to this reality. The law had not come to them. Do you see the pattern here? It is quite possible to know the law, meaning the letter of the law, and not really to know the law, meaning the spirit of the law. This seemed to be the case with the Pharisees, Paul included. From an external standpoint, they were obeying the law. From a spiritual internal standpoint, however, they were failing miserably. But they could not see it because they did not properly understand the true nature of the law. So when Paul comments that apart from the law, sin lies dead, and that he was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died, we know what he doesn't mean. 
He doesn't mean that there was a time when he was without the law. He was raised in the Jewish faith and became a Pharisee. He was always under the law. Nor was there a time when sin was truly dead. Sin has never been dead since the fall of man. Paul has already acknowledged in chapter 5 that sin came into the world through Adam and death with sin. And even before the Mosaic law, Paul states that death reigned from Adam to Moses. So sin and its consequences have always been there post-fall. But let me ask you this. Is it possible for sin to be mightily at work in you and for you to be completely unaware of its presence and its power? Is it possible to think that all is well and to truly be a cesspool of sin and death. This is what Paul is pointing to. What he intends to say is that if we do not have a proper understanding of the law, it is easy to convince ourselves that we're doing great. If obeying the law simply means not murdering someone, then we can convince ourselves that sin is dead and we are alive. We are easily able to fancy ourselves to be full of life and strength and power. We can be confident and self-congratulatory, patting ourselves on the back for how wonderfully moral we live. A true understanding of the law shows us otherwise, and it brings us low. A true understanding of the law shows that we are dead in our sin. It shows us that we are wicked to the core and that our desires are evil. And not only that, it shows us the power of sin to overcome us. Look at what Paul says here in verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. He's going to repeat this in verse 11 for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment. And then he's going to add, deceived me and through it killed me. This phrase, seizing an opportunity, comes from a military context. It's describing a forward operating base from which attacks are launched. Don't miss this. What Paul is describing here is remarkable and terrifying. Sin is so powerful, it is actually using God's commands as a base of operations to launch attacks against us and to work out its purposes in us. Friends, I hope that this is as disturbing to you as it is to me. Sin is working by way of the law to arouse in us that element of rebellion toward God that has been in us from birth. The law comes and addresses us, and as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, at once the antagonism to God is innate within us and natural to us. The spirit of rebellion is aroused and aggravated, and our self-assertiveness comes into play. Who has the right to tell Me, what I can and can't have. What business is it of yours how I live my life? No one is going to repress my desires. 
Not only do you not have the right to tell me what to do and what not to do, you certainly don't have the right to tell me what I can and can't think. I rather like fantasizing about what I would like to do to that person. We will bow our knee to no one. We are self-satisfied, self-contained, independent. We resent the law because we resent God. Do you see how sin uses the law as a base of operations and deceives us? You might think that the law, when it comes to us, would slay sin. But because of the power of sin working in us, the exact opposite thing happens. It actually brings out the real strength and reveals the real nature and character of sin. It provides an antagonist against which sin works. The law comes and tells us what we can't have and what we shouldn't desire. And now, all of a sudden, that is exactly what we want. I'm learning as a parent that there are times for me to give positive discipline, being proactive and teaching my children what not to do and what to do before any opportunities arise. I think it's good biblical wisdom to not only correct when necessary, but also beforehand to give proper instruction that they should know the way they should go before they get there. I'm also learning this must be done with wisdom because I might be simply giving my children ideas that lead them to sin. The wisdom of the world would tell us that knowledge leads to right behavior, right? People aren't inherently bad. They just haven't been taught otherwise. Our sinful nature has something very different to say. Just the other day, we got a new bunk bed set up for the girls as we seek to make room in the house for our baby boy. And like I didn't know any better, I say to the girls something to this effect. This is not a toy. It's not a piece of playground equipment. Do not play on it. Do not jump off of it. It is very dangerous. And what happens? In no time, they are on the top step, jumping off. This is how sin works in regard to the law. But this isn't the only way sin uses, or rather misuses, the law. Sin might also embolden us to make us feel as though the law is unreasonable and unjust in the things it demands. After all, you have certain instincts and impulses and drives, obviously they must be there for a good reason. Why would you not use them? Just follow the, your heart, sin says. For if you repress those feelings, it will be terribly unhealthy. Have you heard that voice? How about this? You were meant for freedom. God must be against you and not want you to live a happy or fulfilling life. Have you heard that voice? Or sin might also whisper in your ears that your sin is nothing to worry about. Surely you won't die. It is only one lie 
it was just flirting. It was only one night. It was just a little money. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, right? Have you heard that voice? Or maybe sin uses the law to condemn you. You broke God's law. You have failed. You are ruined. God doesn't love you anymore. There really is no point in trying to follow God's law any longer. Have you heard that voice? This is the nature of sin. As Paul says in Ephesians, sin darkens our understanding. It perverts us from thinking clearly. It misrepresents and perverts everything. This doesn't mean that at all that the law is to blame, though. The law, as Paul says in verse 12, is holy. It is the absolute antithesis of sin and evil. And how could it be otherwise? It is an expression of God's character. As Martin Lloyd-Jones states, the law is a kind of transcript of the character of God. It is a perfect expression of his desire and of his will. The law, therefore, is holy in the sense that it not only reveals to us the character of God and what our character, therefore, should be, but it also holds us to that revelation. And so far be it that it is to blame for our sin, the law helps us to recognize sin and to realize the power, the tremendous power of sin. And through this understanding, we come to know ourselves to be completely helpless. As Paul says, it killed me. Sin uses that which revealed the way of holiness and happiness and life, if it could be perfectly obeyed to break us down and to defeat us. We are left with no strength, feeling as though we are dead. We are slaves to its power. And you know what? It might just be that the first sign of your spiritual life is to feel that you are dead. Remember Paul told us in chapter 5, For while we were still weak, without strength, powerless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And here it is. We reach what Paul wants us to understand. As long as we are under sin, it will simply produce more sin in us. It will reveal our deadness to us, our utter hopelessness. So our only hope of sanctification is to be set free from the law. The law cannot deliver us. The law kills us. It makes us as dead men. But all of this is that we would turn to Jesus Christ to find our salvation, that we would die to the sin and the law and that we would find life in our union with the resurrected Christ, that we would look to God's spirit to empower us to live free from the bondage of sin in grateful obedience to Jesus Christ. So has the law come to you as it did to Paul? Do you know that your desires, your thoughts, your inclinations are as important as your actions? Have you felt the power of sin at work tearing you down? 
Most importantly, have you looked to Jesus Christ? To his perfect obedience to the law, his suffering and death on the cross of Calvary, where sin has been dealt with once and for all and the power of sin has been defeated. That you might know the justice and righteousness and holiness and love of God for you. Do you know? Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the giving of your law. We give you thanks, Lord, that we are not left under the law, Lord, but that you send your son, Jesus Christ, who lives in perfect obedience to the law, Lord, that we might be freed from the law. Lord, help us. Help us by your spirit to live in that freedom in obedience to Christ. For we pray this in his holy and precious name. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed.